to Mountain. We are Radio Catskill. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, New York municipalities used to keep the surplus from foreclosed homes sold at auction. Then the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. Now New York towns have to pay residents back, leaving local governments and land banks in limbo as they wait for the state to amend the law. We'll learn more from the journalists at New York Focus reporting on how power and politics in New York impact your life and how the state really works. And we'll hear from the Sullivan County Democrat about how the village of Jeffersonville is dealing with the issue of abandoned, vacant, boarded, and foreclosed properties through a new law. Plus the latest polling from Siena College, Hokel Up, Biden Down. And our Women in Business series continues this morning with Misty Hackworth of The Junction in Roscoe and Moving Toward Health with Maggie Fitzpatrick. First the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Voting's underway in New Hampshire's presidential primary in a race between two candidates, former President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. The former South Carolina governor went to the polling place in Hampton telling voters she's in it for the long haul. We're going to South Carolina. Um, we have put in the ad buy. We're there. This is this has always been a marathon. It's never been a sprint. We want to be strong in Iowa. We want to be stronger than that in New Hampshire. We're going to be even stronger than that in South Carolina. And Piers Danielle Kurtzleben has more. When I've seen her in New Hampshire, she's been attacking Trump quite a bit, emphasizing that he's the chaos candidate. And she's had a kind of new line of attack in recent days, saying that the political class is lining up behind Trump, essentially saying that given all of the endorsements he's been getting, he's the establishment candidate. Her other big line of attack is electability. She says that she could more easily defeat Biden than Trump. But really, in recent polls, it's not clear really whether she's ahead of Biden right now in head-to-heads. NPR's Daniel Kurtzleben reporting from New Hampshire. In California, the four top candidates vying for the U.S. Senate seat, long held by the late Dianne Feinstein, squared off in their first debate last night. From member station KQED, Marisa Lagos has more. It was Republican Steve Garvey's first chance to introduce himself to voters as a candidate. A former L.A. Dodgers star, Garvey was happy to talk about his time on the field. But he wasn't so keen on talking about whether he plans to vote for former President Donald Trump again this fall. When the time comes, I'll do exactly what I said to you. I will look at the two opponents. I will determine what they did. And at that time, I will make my choice. Garvey's Democratic opponents, Representatives Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee, attacked Garvey and said re-electing Trump would threaten U.S. democracy. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in Los Angeles. Stocks opened mixed this morning as investors watch for a slew of corporate earnings news. NPR Scott Horsley reports the Dow slipped about 65 points in early trading. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 closed in record territory on Monday, with the Dow topping 38,000 for the first time ever. Dozens of companies in the S&P index are reporting quarterly earnings this week. Procter & Gamble says it expects profits this year to be flat or slightly lower than last year's, a write-down of the company's Gillette Razor business 
business shaved $1.3 billion off P&G's bottom line. United Airlines offered an upbeat forecast for the coming year, but the company had a warning for Boeing. United CEO told CNBC the airline will consider alternatives to Boeing's next model of 737s for its fleet, adding the jet maker needs to take real action to restore its reputation for quality. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow's down 66 points. The Nasdaq is up 21. This is NPR. At least six people were killed, dozens injured in Ukraine after Russia launched its latest wave of missile strikes on the country. And here's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. The strikes targeted Ukraine's two biggest cities. Ukrainian officials said the Russian attack included 40 ballistic crews, anti-aircraft and guided missiles. In Kiev, residents were jolted awake just before dawn by several explosions and orange flashes of light. Ukraine's air defense shot down only half the missiles. Ammunition is running low. In Kiev, debris from destroyed missiles hit buildings and cars. In Kharkiv, an apartment building partly collapsed. Analysts say Russia has stockpiled missiles to shoot at Ukraine this winter. This attack comes after a Ukrainian attack on a Russian-occupied city in the east that Russia says killed more than two dozen people. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kiev. TikTok is laying off 60 employees as it tries to cut costs. The video sharing platform says the majority of jobs were in the sales and ad divisions. It's the latest tech company to conduct layoffs in recent weeks. Google and Amazon slashed thousands of jobs as the sector shifts to develop new generative AI tools. TikTok, one of the most popular apps in the U.S., has about 7,000 employees here. Its parent company, China-based ByteDance, has more than 150,000 workers around the world. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 94 points, NASDAQ up 19. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org. Welcome back to Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. The village of Jeffersonville is dealing with the issue of abandoned, vacant, boarded, and foreclosed properties through a new law. We'll hear more about that later, but first... The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that it's unconstitutional for municipalities to keep surplus funds from the sale of foreclosed homes at public auctions last May. Now, New York towns have to pay residents back, leaving local governments and land banks in limbo as they wait for the state to amend the law. And what does that mean for those who have faced foreclosure? Radio Catskills' Jason Dole spoke with Arabella Saunders, economic development reporter for New York Focus, New York Focus is the independent newsroom reporting on how power and politics in New York impact your life and how the state really works. And we've partnered with them to bring you their in-depth journalism. In May of 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court had a case come up before them. Um, a woman named Geraldine Tyler, she was an octogenarian living in Hennepin County, Minnesota, and she had her condo foreclosed on by her local government after failing to pay $15,000 in taxes. But then the local government sold the condo for $40,000, and instead of returning that extra $25,000 back to Tyler, the local government kept it. And so the case is um, taken by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of Tyler, 
and made it unconstitutional for these local governments to keep this extra money after a tax foreclosure sale. What should happen with it? What's going to happen to it, that extra money from now on? Yeah, so the Supreme Court saying that, that from now on, that extra money needs to go back to the former owner, homeowner. Basically, what used to happen is, we'll use New York as an example, you know, someone failed to pay their taxes, and the local government begins a foreclosure, they evict them from the property, they take the deed to the property, and then sometimes they would put it up for auction. And let's say the person owed $10,000 in taxes, the local government will sell the house for $80,000, Instead of paying back the ten thousand dollars to the form or homeowner, they would keep that remaining seventy thousand. But now that remaining seventy thousand would go back to the homeowner. But part of the issue now is that there's not a lot of guidance for how this should play out. So state lawmakers are charged with the task of amending the New York State Constitution to make it follow the Supreme Court ruling. And part of that issue also is, you know, how far back does this go? Is this just for the future? Or do we now have to decide that all these people who had their money taken from in the past by these local governments should get paid back? And that part's still up in the air. Who will determine how that lands when it's no longer in the air? So that will be determined by state lawmakers. Um, so we talked to State Senator Sean Ryan, Democrat, Democrat from Buffalo, and he said there are currently several bills that have been introduced that he believes will be combined into one to restructure the tax foreclosure process in New York. So we're still waiting, like local municipalities, like local people who have lost this money, to figure out what happens next. People's properties, their their homes, the things that they owned, represent their life savings. It's a major investment. That's where they put a lot of their funds. So even if they weren't able to pay a tax debt, they still had more equity in that property. Is that part of why the Supreme Court made this ruling? Is that acknowledgement that there was this major investment on the part of individuals? Exactly. It's not just the physical property itself that gets taken away. It's all this money you've invested over the years. Um, to own this property. And after you get foreclosed on, instead of, you know, getting some of that money back and being able to use it to put it forward to new housing, all of a sudden you're left with nothing. And also you don't have any home anymore. This is the U.S. Supreme Court. There isn't a, a second opinion or an appeal waiting on this, is there? No. So that that's a major change for the municipalities Again, they're they're used to going through this process, and then they would retain those funds. What are you hearing about response to this so far? There's been a few different responses. You know, some municipalities are saying it's not a huge dent to their budget overall, but instead it's more of an administrative headache because they have to track down the people who lost these homes, get in contact with them, set up some type of way to give them their money back. And some of these municipalities only have a few employees. And so they're worried about, you know, that being really a lot of work for their employees to do on top of their day-to-day tasks. Um, And for that reason, they're asking for more money from the state to try to get through this administrative headache, as they say. Um, So it's really going to play out differently across the state. You know, I talked to Dave Lucas, the director of finance and intergovernmental relations for the New York State Association of Counties. um, And he was saying that really the impact on local governance budgets will vary. 
And we're talking about lost equity. Uh, is there also an equality angle to this social justice uh, racism at work here? Because, you know, uh, a lot of real estate is built on uh, past transgressions, generations past, redlining of neighborhoods and such like that. Did that come up at all in your reporting? Absolutely. Um, you know, I talked to the director of the Syracuse Land Bank, and even though land banks, usually this process has been a plus to land banks because they can get these properties at a really low price. But now that municipalities, municipalities have to return the money, land banks are going to have to pay more up front for these properties that they rehab and then put back into the community for sale. Um, and so the director of the Syracuse Land Bank was telling me that really Tyler is a step in the right direction, even if it makes things a little more complicated for her organization. You know, they dealt with a lot of formerly redlined neighborhoods and in around Syracuse, and they saw a lot of minority homeowners who were losing equity when they got foreclosed on. So she thought that this was definitely a step in the right direction and something that needed to be done to reverse that. The example that you have here in the article is talking about before this ruling called Tyler, the city of Syracuse would sell a tax delinquent property to the Syracuse Land Bank for $151. 150 of that covered administrative fees. Um, now would the land bank have to pay whatever that tax debt is? Is that the price line? Like going from $150 up to tens of thousands of dollars? Yes, that's probably what's going to happen. And for that reason, you know, land banks are looking to the state just like local municipalities are um, asking for more money to possibly make that happen. Another solution to that issue they've told me is, you know, setting a limit on how many properties they can take on a year because now they will be having to pay more money up front for these properties. But that said, just to double back what you said initially, that even though that's a new obstacle, they got to figure out how to get over. In the case of the Syracuse Land Bank, they're feeling it overall. This is a step in the right direction why? Because this leads to better equality than there had been? Absolutely, yep. What else did you find in this story as you dug into it? Because, again, this ruling came from out west, but it does affect multiple states, uh, New York included. So what did you uncover that kind of surprised you about this story? You know, I think the thing that was most surprising to me was that this is just kind of how things were and everyone was accepting it. You know, when you really spell it out, it seems so wild that this is a thing that was allowed to go on for so long um, and everyone just thought yep that's just the way it works um, so I think that was the most fascinating thing about the story and yeah it's exciting to see that now New York can move in a direction where people can get the money that they have worked so hard to earn um, given back to them after they go through something like tax foreclosure. And just as the land banks uh, might be looking for more money, so too county officials might be looking to the state to invest more? Yep. Not only to invest more in helping them, you know, fill some potential gaps in their budgets, but also more money invested in tax foreclosure prevention programs within municipalities. You know, really nipping this in the bud and making it so people don't have to go through the tax foreclosure process. No one has to get their surplus returned. Um they can prevent foreclosure before it happens. Did, yeah, how exactly? Could you explain to me how that an investment like that would actually benefit the people on the ground? Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing we talked about with the New York State Association of Counties is investing in education programs within municipalities. So, you know, going door to door, letting people know that they're at risk of tax foreclosure. Here's some ways that you can prevent it. 
investing in payment programs, just really having more people on the ground explaining to people the positions they're in versus just mailing them a letter that might be vague or difficult to understand. Okay. Is there anything else you want to let folks know about this story? I don't think so. I think you covered it all. Okay. Well, you covered it first, and I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us about it here uh, on the Local Edition. Great. Thanks so much. That was Jason Dole on the Local Edition last night speaking with Arabella Saunders, economic development reporter for New York Focus. New York Focus is the independent newsroom reporting on how power and politics in New York impact your life and how the state really works. And we have a partnership with you, with them, to bring you their in-depth journalism. You can find their reporting at nysfocus.com. Now, the village of Jeffersonville is dealing with the issue of abandoned, vacant, boarded, and foreclosed properties through a new law that for some businesses could not come soon enough. Patricio Rubio spoke to Derek Kirk, the editor of the Sullivan County Democrat, for a look at this story and more headlines in the current issue. So the focal lens remains on Jeffersonville's infrastructure as the village and its residents and business owners take a look at what can be done to rejuvenate the physical buildings that line Main Street. The most recent step towards that goal was a local law that was recently passed titled Properties Abandoned, Vacant, Boarded, and Foreclosed. And that law impacts Chapter 156 of the Village Code. And that was enacted on January 10th. And basically what that new law does in Jeffersonville is it requires that owners of those abandoned, vacant, and boarded up and foreclosed buildings must make an effort to fix the structures or face financial consequences that could be up to a $1,000 tax levy in the first year and then additional $500 tacked on each year. So the push to revitalize Main Street Jeffersonville is alive and from the village board. And we'll see more how that may shape the face of Jeffersonville in the coming years. This is an issue that's facing a lot of towns and villages is what to do with this aging infrastructure and finding the money of how to do these repairs and keep up with the, the growing population and development that's going on in Sullivan County. So currently this, this plan is in effect now. It is currently active. It was enacted on January 10th. So moving on here, uh, the legislature, Sullivan County legislature will be meeting for the third time this year on Thursday. One of the big topics that looks like that will be talked about is the adult care center. Just to remind folks, this is a brand new legislature, new Sullivan County legislature. And one of the topics that sort of uh, motivated some of the candidates who ran for the current legislature, legislature was, was the adult care center and what happened to the adult care center as far as the management of it and uh, how it dropped in ratings. Again, the adult care center will be in the forefront for this current legislature. Derek, what can you tell us? Yeah, the adult care center has been at the forefront of the legislature for the past four years, and it looks to be it will continue that trend with the new legislature coming up as they are looking at the pending decisions that were left by the previous board. And those discussions were brought up again during committee meetings on Thursday, January 18th, that revolved around the adult care center at Sunset Lake. One of those discussions on the care center concerned were occurred during the Human Resources Committee, which newcomer District 8 legislator Amanda Ward is the chair of. Human Resources Commissioner Julie Dra gave her monthly report where she talked about the implementation of referral programs for the care center in their quote unquote struggle in getting applicants. So more to come on to read in. Tuesday's edition of the Sullivan County Democrat in what is happening with the adult care center at Sunset Lake 
definitely going to be an interesting meeting. As I said, a lot of the some of the candidates who ran for the current legislature were advocates and activists for the care center. So interesting to see how that all plays out now. So moving on to the school district for Liberty, it seems like their capital improvement plan was approved. Is that correct? So the Liberty Central School District voters approved the $42.7 million infrastructure project that has been passed around by the the school district. It was presented before the Board of Education and presented before the Town of Liberty Town Board. Both appear to be well-received, which has showed since its passing of 178 yes to 47 no, and a complete list of what the school might be looking to um look at to improve or replace can be found in the article in Tuesday's edition of the Solomon County Democrat. Some of the things I know of the capital project plan that was coming out of the school of Liberty was I know they wanted to renovate the senior or create a senior lounge for the seniors there, make a, uh, a hangout space there where they could converse and also create a updated cafeteria where now in this day and age are cognizant of school shootings that the cafeteria has more safety measures for the schools. If they're in a lockdown situation, some of the doors can slam down and they're sealed all the way to making an innovation space for some of the students there in the district to the updating the athletic fields, resurfacing the track, updating HVAC system controls to some of the school buildings there, roof repairs, and even some of the small things like, not small things, but and some repairs to some structural things like repair broken stairs and uh, cracks and things like that. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Derek. We're talking to Derek Kurt, editor for the Sullivan County Democrat, letting us know what's happening in the Sullivan Catskills. Thank you so much, Derek. We'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Stay safe and be warm. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Rabayo. And the current issue of the Sullivan County Democrat is out now. And you can also find it online, scdemocratonline.com. We'll take a break. And when we come back, New York Governor Kathy Hochul is enjoying her best polling in nearly a year. And for the third straight presidential election, New York voters are likely to vote against Donald Trump in November. But President Biden's numbers fall to a new low. That's all according to a survey from Siena College Research. We'll learn more next. This is Radio Chatsko. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow Wisp Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org. Hey, it's Steve Inskeep. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the things you can count on from NPR and this station, we've got your back. When it comes to reporting the news, bringing you facts you can count on. You can help by donating a vehicle you no longer need. That car could be worth hundreds of dollars in support or more as a donation. Think about it. We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. A new Siena College poll finds that Governor Kathy Hochul has her highest numbers in nearly a year, while President Joe Biden's popularity and performance ranking falls to a new low in blue New York. 
From Albany, Karen DeWitt reports. The poll offers a mixed bag for Hochul, who's been in office for two and a half years. Her job performance rating is above 50 percent, and more people view her favorably than unfavorably. But Sienna's Steve Greenberg says New Yorkers don't have a lot of faith in the governor's abilities to tackle major problems that she's identified facing the state, including addressing the affordable housing crisis, improving public safety, and making New York the AI capital of the world. We also asked about five of the issues that she has made part of her mainstay as, as in, in her governorship. And she's talked a lot about it over the last two years and a lot over the last few weeks as part of her State of the State tour. And on all five of those issues, a plurality or majority of voters do not think she will make progress this year on those issues. The poll also gives a first look in 2024 at where New Yorkers stand on the presidential race. In a state that has twice as many registered Democrats as Republicans, President Joe Biden's favorability rating is underwater, with 53 percent viewing him negatively compared to 43 percent who give him a positive ranking. While 70 percent of Democrats still back Biden and nearly 90 percent of Republicans don't like him. The key group of independent voters who actually outnumber Republicans in the state also dislike Biden. 71 percent of independents view him favorably and fully three quarters disapprove of his job performance. When it comes to the likely Republican nominee, former President Donald Trump has solidified his base with three quarters of GOP voters in New York saying they want to see Trump become president again. Biden still leads Trump 46 to 37 percent, but Greenberg says that has to be worrisome for Democrats in the state. A Republican has not carried the presidential race in New York in 40 years, four decades since Ronald Reagan won re-election back in 1984. The fact that Joe Biden is only up by nine points now has to be concerning to the Biden camp, to all Democrats in New York who are going to have to run with him as their standard bearer. While the governor's seat is not up for election for two more years, all of the 212 state legislative posts hold contests in November, as well as the state's 26 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. Incumbent U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is also seeking re-election. Several of the congressional races are expected to be close, and Democrats are seeking to take back four seats that flip Republican in 2022. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. And we're getting you closer to the issues and closer to your vote this election year. Join us for live special coverage of the New Hampshire primary from NPR tonight at 7. Hosts Ari Shapiro and Asma Khalid will be joined by NPR national political correspondent Mara Liason, White House correspondents Franco Ordonez and Tamara Keith, senior political editor Domenico Montanaro, and political correspondent Ashley Lopez. NPR's coverage of this year's race brings you in-depth analysis and perspectives from all sides, so you'll have a more complete grasp of what's really happening and what it means for you. That's special live coverage of the New Hampshire primary tonight at 7 here on Radio Catskill. Get closer to the issues. Get closer to your vote. We'll take a break. And when we come back, Maggie Fitzpatrick is here. Moving Toward Health is her column in the Sullivan County Democrat. And we'll learn more about it next. This is Radio Catskill. 
I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now!, independent grassroots global news. Our reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. People speaking for themselves, providing unique and sometimes provocative perspectives on global events. Democracy Now!, weekdays at noon, right here on Radio Catskill. I'm Callison Stratton, a singer-songwriter, public historian, and host of Liberation Station here on WJFF Radio Catskill. Liberation Station is a show that highlights the work of female and femme-presenting performers across genre and time. It's my little way of balancing the scales of representation on the radio. Join me for Liberation Station every Saturday evening at 7 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every Tuesday, we hear from Maggie Fitzpatrick. She is the health and wellness, col- wellness columnist for the Sullivan County Democrat. Her column is out today in issues on newsstands or online at scdemocratonline.com. Good morning. Good morning. And I understand that today's column deals with Columbus, Ohio, women's basketball, and cardiovascular health. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did all those things come together? A nice little unexpected combination. Yes. Um, well, all of those things came together because this past weekend, um, my husband and I drove to Columbus and we went to watch the women's basketball game between Ohio State and Iowa. And it was the largest crowd for a women's basketball game. Big game. Whole season. Ohio State won in overtime. It was crazy. Um, and it was so much fun. But it made me think about the other time that I've spent in Ohio in my life. Um, and when I was in college, I completed my internship in Cleveland at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, at that time, I was really interested in cardiac rehab and helping people with exercise after having some sort of heart surgery. So people who are dealing with any sort of cardiovascular um, illnesses, the Cleveland Clinic is one of the best places in the world to go and have heart surgery. And you had a particular personal interest in that. I did, yeah, because my dad, um, he had pretty much every cardiovascular disease you could name off. He probably had all of them, (laughs) Um, congestive heart failure. um, He had many heart attacks, stents placed, um, all the things, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, all the other comorbidities that come with that, diabetes, hypertension, you know, all the things. And so he passed away when I was in high school. And after I got into exercise science, that was always there for me. You know, it was always there and it was something that I wanted to learn more about. So I got accepted to the Cleveland Clinic, went, did my whole um, semester long internship there. And I learned so many things. But the biggest thing I learned is that I didn't want to be there. What do you mean? I didn't want to be there because although the people that were there were being helped tremendously. Like being an exercise professional in that role is so rewarding and you really get to help people who need your help so much, right? Especially if they are coming out of heart surgery or something like that. Um, you really have the ability to impact people and help them change their life. But I wanted to help people not get there in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's what I really wanted. And I felt like when I was there, I, although, you know, the impact was huge and the reward was great. Um, I didn't feel like I was truly accomplishing what I 
set out to accomplish, which was have people not be in that position that my dad was in, have people not have their kids in that position where their parents are sick. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that I think was the biggest thing that I learned from being there was that I really wanted to help people prevent themselves from needing to go to the best cardio, you know, cardiology center in the world. I didn't, um, I didn't want to spend my time in that way. I wanted to really try to help people live as healthy and active lives as possible before it got there. How did that revelation come about when you were in the middle of this internship after it was done? How did that sort of manifest? It was kind of like as it was going on and towards the end, you know, because when I was there, I was just learning so much. I was doing, I had like four different rotations where I was learning different things. It It was really intense. And I learned so much and the people were amazing. And so in the beginning, you know, you're kind of just wrapped up and you're like, I'm learning all of this stuff. This is so cool. This place is incredible. And then as it went on, I felt myself just feeling kind of sad. Um, and I think what it was for me was kind of just like reliving this experience over and over that I had a personal experience with, right? Reliving it over and over and realizing that there are incredible people in the world who are going to do this work. And my calling is somewhere else. And my calling is to help people not get here. And so it was kind of, you know, throughout the entire thing. Were you kind of seeing the patients at the Cleveland Clinic reflecting your dad? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The Although everyone's situation is different. Yeah. Right. Um, but you're immersed with it every day. Yes. And the patterns are the same. Right. right? Which is why. Which is a feeling of helplessness in a way. Right? It I'm is. Sure that you went through in high school. Yes. And then you see this here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why like when we come on here, we talk about something different every week. Right. But yeah. the principle is always the same. The principle is take small steps towards your health every day. And they can look different. It's going to look different for you than me. It's going to look different for people in different seasons of their life. But if we can take small steps towards improving our health every day, then we have the best chance of living a healthy life and not ending up in that situation. Yeah. And sometimes we talk about the things that folks think about when you say moving toward health, which mean like exercise, nutrition, those things. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a different aspect of that, this, this cardiac care. Let's talk a little bit, though, about some of the things you did learn in these phases of cardiac rehabilitation that then led you to this preventative path that you're on. Yeah, I'd love that. So in cardiac rehab, basically, the exercise physiologist helps someone take their first steps out of open heart surgery, right? Like this person has surgery and like you're the first person there helping them get up, making sure their body is responding, all of that stuff. And then you continue to work with them through them being discharged and they move into outpatient care and you help them with monitored exercise. So you really like you're paying attention to their heart rate, their blood pressure, their blood sugar, all of these things while they're exercising. And you're also educating them on how to live a healthier lifestyle all the way through to like phase three would be when they don't really need to be monitored so much anymore. And a lot of people like to come back to the facility for, you know, the environment and the, you know, the relationship that you've built with them, but they don't need as much monitoring. And so you really get to work with people through that entire experience, which is something that is really beneficial for anyone that is going through any sort of cardiovascular operation, right? Or, you know, you have some sort of acute experience. Um, If you have the ability to go to cardiac rehab, I would highly recommend it because you learn so many things and it's really that bridge that's going to help you um, change the way that you live. So that way, hopefully you don't experience that again. 
I imagine that the people who go through this rehabilitation are more motivated to do the right things. Do you find it harder to convince people who may have not gotten there yet, but are on that path to quote, do the right things? I think you see a balance of both, no matter where you are. So there, there, I would say probably like half of the people were really motivated to change and half of them weren't and you would see them again. And the same, it's the same thing in the preventative world where half of the people are really motivated to change and half of them say they are. And then you see them again, you know, like it's, it's, you would think that a really serious life event would alter someone's um, course and the way that they live. But we all have our own floor and ceiling of what we find acceptable for ourselves. So until we reach that floor of this is the lowest I will go then we won't change, right? So it's up to us to actively move that floor up and say, I used to accept a heart attack as the lowest point for myself. And now I'm going to move that floor to my, you know, my blood work has got to be at a certain point. And if it falls below this point, that is my, you know, um, spark to make change, right? But it's really hard to move that floor and move that trigger of what it takes for us to make change. What is it you want folks to know who um, may have some cardiac problems or have a history of cardiac disease uh, in their family? I, I have cardiac history on both sides of my family. Yeah, same. I think what I would want them to know is that there's always hope and there's always, you know, resources and things for you to learn and, you know, small steps that you can take to just improve your quality of life in this moment and hopefully in the future, right? Because so many of us do have history of some sort of cardiovascular disease in our family or maybe even within ourselves, right? We've already experienced something. Um, and that past or your family history doesn't have to determine the future for you, right? The action that you take every day is what is going to impact that future. And so I would say that I would never want to see someone give up hope or feel like, you know, they are just doomed because of the past. It doesn't have to impact the way that your life goes moving forward. And what are some of the small steps that folks can take, not only for cardiovascular health, but, you know, a lot of uh what we're trying to do moving toward health is minimize all disease. What are some of these small steps? Yeah. Super small steps. Walking. Incredible. Right. Like we of course want to improve the amount of exercise that we do no matter what, but walking is something that a lot of us live really sedentary lives. We're even sitting right now doing this interview. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if we can get up and take some steps throughout the day, a step goal is a great place to start um, because it doesn't require super structured exercise. Right paying attention to the food that we're eating and trying to just eat like one meal of whole foods more than you do per day, right? So if right now you're eating fast food or prepare foods often, how can we just like eat one more whole food each day and try to slowly change the way that we're eating um, and being mindful of our stress levels, of course. And didn't we talk about affirmations recently? Yeah, we did. Here's one. I will not go to Cleveland. I will not go to Cleveland. I will not end up in in Cleveland. Like Cleveland. (laughs) I know. The Cleveland Clinic is what we're talking about. Yeah. No offense. If you do end up there, you are lucky. That's for sure. Um, (laughs) But yeah, affirmations can definitely help in this situation as well. (laughs) Well, it's an interesting column. It's moving toward health in the Sullivan County Democrat out today. Um, 
about how you, you know, were most grateful about this experience at the Cleveland Clinic, which is a, you know, world-class professional institution, but how you just don't want to be there. You don't want to go there. You want to help people from getting there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you, at the game with, between the, the, uh, Buckeyes and the, the Hawkeyes, um, did you uh, pick up any tips or tricks that you're going to share with your, uh, local uh, women's basketball team in Livingston Manor? Oh, absolutely. I think for the first like quarter, I was not even in, I couldn't even believe I was there. Like for the whole first quarter, I was sitting there and Cosmos was like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm great. I'm great right now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was such a cool experience to be able to just see that level of basketball in person. It was just amazing. And how is uh, the Livingston Manor team doing? How is your team doing? We are improving. Good. We have fantastic practices which is great um our schedule has been tough but i'm looking forward to the end of the season (laughs) and what i mean by that is the games that are coming up now that we're nearing the end of the season not the season being over is the season ending soon um we have about another month or so oh okay so we have about nine games left oh okay got it got it Mm -hmm. all right maggie fitzpatrick uh from the sullivan county democrat the health and wellness columnist moving toward health you can find it at sc democrat online thank you so much thank you All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, our Women in Business series continues with Misty Hackworth from The Junction in Roscoe. This is Radio Chatskill. I am Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, you may have noticed that universities are having some trouble these days. I do think there needs to be a reckoning. But this isn't the kind of trouble you may be thinking. That paper has three experiments, and at least two different people appear to have committed fraud for at least two different studies. Why is there so much fraud in academia? It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. This afternoon at 1 o'clock on Radio Catskill. You're on the go, and Radio Catskill can go with you. Listen live to Radio Catskill on your phone. Just type wjffradio.org into your browser and listen wherever you are. Stay up to date on local news, culture, and NPR on the go on your phone with Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania. Offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Welcome back to Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. Women in Business is our special series this week, and we continue highlighting local women entrepreneurs speaking about their lives and experiences and forging a successful path in their chosen career. Today, we speak to Misty Hackworth, co-owner of The Junction in Roscoe, alongside her husband, Aaron, about her journey from Texas to the Catskills. You moved from Texas to Brooklyn, (laughs) and did you start off in the restaurant industry, or what motivated your move? No, I had a friend in Texas who decided to move to New York City, and I thought she was crazy. And then she asked if I wanted to go, and I was like, actually, everything's kind of lined up. I can. So I just decided to kind of move on a whim. Um, I'd worked for a money manager in Texas. I had worked for a couple of restaurants, but not before I moved to New York that recently. So 
Then when I was in New York, I worked for a company that worked with my money manager and then quit that because I didn't want to work in a corporate job anymore and started working more locally in Greenpoint and worked for a few restaurants. And then that moved into Brooklyn Brewery. Is that where you met your husband? Um, so that's a longer story. I mean, <laughs> yes, technically, <laughs> technically, um, he used to work at one of, you know, all of my, my friend's favorite bars. It was called Extra Fancy. And that was in Williamsburg. It was kind of all of our local hangout. And it was also an account of mine because I did sales for Brooklyn Brewery. So I dealt with all the bars and restaurants in North Brooklyn around the brewery. Um, and that was one of the main ones. So he handled the bar there and we became friends. And then eventually years later, that turned into dating. (laughs) (laughs) And did that turn into also this partnership in terms of food and, and uh, the restaurant or how did that develop? The ironic part is we were friends for years and we talked about opening this much crazier version of what we're doing now, but um, we realized it was way too expensive to to do in Brooklyn. But our original idea was to open something together as friends. And then it just happened to be years later that, you know, as a married couple, we opened ju- the junction. And how did you find the area? Did you guys were coming up on weekends? Yeah. So I had a car in the city because I was doing sales and I was having to lug beer around places constantly. Um, and then that made it so I could go upstate and get out of the city as often as I wanted. So he started coming with me and we would go camping and we taught ourselves how to fly fish. And then it turned into, I mean, an extreme hobby where we were doing it every weekend. So in the summer, I mean, we were literally up here almost as much as we were in the city. And then it turned into, well, we should just buy a house because it's probably more affordable than doing this every weekend. Um, and so we bought our house in 2019. And you escaped Brooklyn. <laughs> Technically, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, unfortunately, the pandemic sort of pushed us out. But I, I mean, I was ready to move. He was worried about what he would do for work. And we talked about opening something. We did not in any way plan for it to be this soon. But that's just how it worked out. Yeah, you didn't plan on it being that soon. As you said, it sort of was a crazy idea you had. How do you feel about it now that it's sort of developed into this, you know, day-to-day, your life, really? I mean, I feel great about it now. Obviously, when we started really thinking about it was during the pandemic. And I mean, everyone thought we were crazy to try to open a small bar and restaurant in Roscoe during a pandemic. <laughs> but my my mentality was there's no way that people will stay at home forever. Like we're just not meant to be that way. I was like people will be back out at bars and restaurants at some point. So we just planned for that and it was kind of crazy timing. Um we got like our health inspection and the building inspection the weekend of Memorial Day weekend of 2021 and that was the same weekend the mask mandate was lifted. So it was just, it was wild. It was the wildest weekend. People were just ready to come out. All of that pent up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Desire to be out and about and uh, have yeah. food and cocktails with it other people. really great timing. <laughs> how has it been uh, for you as a woman entrepreneur in, in the Catskills? How would you describe the experience? I mean, I guess it's not, I mean, my husband and I do it together, so I'm not, 
luckily doing it alone, but it is a lot to handle, you know? I mean, there's definitely every now and then I get a look, oh, this is your place, Uh, (laughs) or a comment, but that's because, you know, we're also doing everything, like, I'm the server, the manager, the busser, the runner, I, you know, I'm the accountant, I do just about everything, so I think people are shocked at how much we do and how hands-on we are, and that while we're working in the restaurant every day, like, I'm also the face of it, so it's been difficult and um, a lot of work, but totally rewarding to have something that's my own. And you guys keep your restaurant open a little later than most places. It's difficult to find a place that's open late up here. <laughs> it is. And, you know, that's for good reason. We, It's hard in New York, in upstate New York, because the winters are so crazy and kind of unpredictable and the roads can be, you know, icy or snowstorms coming through. So um, we're open until 11, uh, because that's just the we, – we built a place that we wanted to hang out at. So we wanted a place where we could go have a drink after dinner, and there wasn't a rush to get in and out by 8 or 9 p.m. Um, and so even though dinner's done at 9.30, we can still have people hang out with us until 11. Um, but we do have to make sure they get home okay. So we're always keeping an eye on those things, and, you know, it's always up in the air. We talked about this at the beginning where uh, New York – you kind of came to the city uh, a bit on a whim. This wasn't really planned, uh, and it was an idea that's you know that was bubbling around. Is this something that you think will continue for a while, or do you have other crazy ideas? <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, I always have crazy ideas. Uh, <laughs> my my husband will agree to that. I'll just walk out of a room and be like, "So I was thinking." Um, No, so, I mean, the Junction will be here for years to come. We get asked a lot about if we're going to do something else, and there have been a few things that we've talked about this year. Um, We'll definitely do something else at some point. I just, I don't know when or where, (laughs) but it'll be up here somewhere. I want to talk a little bit about inspiration. What (laughs) inspires you and and Aaron at the restaurant uh, in terms of food and the environment? Well, that was pretty huge for us from the beginning and still is. Um, I feel like there's a lot of places that are meant for locals or they're meant for city people or they're more catered that way, whether they intend to be or not. But we wanted to be a place that everyone felt welcome. So whether, you know, you've been living upstate for 50 years or one year, it doesn't really matter. Uh, We wanted it to be like comfortable and cozy and inviting and that, continues to be our goal. Like we have a mixed crowd most nights and I love that about our place. Um, our food is just, it's approachable too. Like we don't want to price anybody out. We do have like a couple nice dishes, but for the most part, it's just consistent. Um, and we try to make sure every single day the meals come out the exact same way and there's no differences and that, you know, it's, it's the same experience every time, maybe even better, who knows, but um, consistency, normal operating hours, and just like a comfortable environment are what we shoot for. Like an authentic space. Yeah. It's not forced. I mean, like, you know, we both fly fish. We're in a fly fishing town. We definitely cater to fishermen, um, but like to locals, to city people, to everybody. Like we, we are the phases. We're the personality and we want everyone to feel welcome. It's almost like as if it had always been there. 
I mean, people do say that, you know, we're going on, we're about to be in our fourth summer open, which is crazy. Can you believe it? <laughs> no, I, I honestly don't know how we survived the first year. It was, it was so wild. Um, but, you know, here we are and people keep coming back. So that's great. We must be doing something right. Um, but it's been, it's been a lot. But like in the best possible way, we never thought we'd be able to do something like this. I never expected it to be as busy as it is or you know, for people to like it as much, but we're very happy with it. Did you have any uh, interest in uh, food or, or restaurants, you know, growing up or anybody in your family? Definitely not me necessarily. I grew up in like, my family was more like retail. My dad was in the Air Force growing up. So we we're kind of all over the place. But Aaron specifically grew up in, um, his family had a hotel on the Outer Banks. So he's always pushed for it, whereas, like, I'm more, you know, the books and the GM, <laughs> things like that. He He's the bartender and loves loves to be behind the bar there, but that was more him. Um, I, you know, I was with Brooklyn Brewery for almost 10 years, so uh, I'd seen so many bars and restaurants open and close, and so that's where my background comes from, is more recent than growing up. I mean... I worked in restaurants. I never really thought about opening one way back then. Or, or owning one. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't think about owning one. <laughs> and and how you guys approach the community, we talked about a little bit too, and you source, you try to source locally as much as possible as well? Yeah, we try to. Um, we deal with like a couple farms around here. Um, we get like our venison from Halloran Farm um, and lots of stuff from Summer and Time Farm. But... Um, you know, as much as we can, but then also sometimes you have to keep cost effective and that's the way we can keep prices down. If we can get, you know, we still use Martin's buns, like (laughs) not, you know, not doing anything crazy, but just doing things that taste good and, you know, are consistent is the key. What else do you want folks to know about the junction and about your experience here in the Catskills? I mean, I think, we, if anyone's ever been there, you see, especially during the summertime, like how crazy and hectic it can be. Um, I think during the winter time, I've, you know, there were a lot of restaurants that announced closings this week or hours and changing or renovation or whatever. Um, and it's really difficult to own a business up here. It's not easy. And anyway, it takes a lot of hard work and effort. And you have to show up every day and, really stand behind it. And I think working throughout the summer and, you know, tons of people come through town, but then when we get to winter time and it like actually slows down, I think that's my favorite part because then we can like actually sit and talk to all our regulars. We have more time to like slow down and like, you know, relax and recharge and really spend time with all the people that show up all year long. And so, like, the winter is my favorite, and that's when I love seeing everybody. Talking about some of the restaurants that closed. Yeah. So we need to support our restaurants. So for someone who's listening, maybe they're a first-timer, they haven't been to the Junction, <laughs> what are what are the things they definitely should order to get that experience? Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're open Friday to Monday. I'd recommend coming in earlier. Um, but things that people love are, like, our smoked trout spread. We do fried artichokes with hot honey on them. We have a venison ragu. And then um, 
our chicken sandwich actually just got voted best chicken dish in the River Report. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, and then we have a really great burger. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, we have a really great burger. All We have a small menu. It's all, you know, it's all going to be good and consistent, but, you know, smoked trout spread and artichokes and ragu, you can't really go wrong. And you can find out more about The Junction at thejunctionrosco.com. I've been talking to Misty Hackworth. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And our Women in Business series continues tomorrow. We'll be speaking with the Pennsylvania uh, Women uh, Ag, Ag Woman of the Year, excuse me, tomorrow uh, with farmer Bonnie LaTourette from Wayne County. That's tomorrow on Radio Chatskill. And remember, you can find all of our conversations and all of our locally produced programming at our website, wjffradio.org. And a program reminder, join Radio Catskill for live special coverage of the New Hampshire primary from NPR tonight at 7. Hosts Ari Shapiro and Asma Khalid will bring you results, analysis, and perspectives from a full team of NPR correspondents and live guests. That special live coverage of the New Hampshire primary tonight at 7. Election 2024 on Radio Catskill. Get closer to the issues. Get closer to your vote. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. Poverty is linked to the blood and can be exterminated. On the next Radio Lab, one of the most dangerous ideas of the 20th century. Sterilization for the best interest of society. People with disabilities. I'm going to do a motion for sterilization. People with mental illness. These are powers of the state, which we should be incredibly suspicious of. Join us for the final episode of our four-part series on the concept of intelligence on the next Radio Lab. On the next Retro Cocktail Hour, we'll ride a roller coaster with Les Baxter. You'll meet the Steve and Edie of jazz. And there's mood music for tropical depression. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Join me where the music's always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour. Wednesday night at 7, here on Radio Catskill. On Point is next, and at 1, it's Freakonomics Radio. The forecast for today, a winter weather advisory, remains in effect through 1 tomorrow afternoon. Uh, This mixed precipitation is going to start off as this wintry mix of snow and alternating with pockets of freezing and rain uh, throughout the rest of the morning and then changing over mostly to uh, freezing rain tomorrow morning, a little rain mix again throughout the afternoon, but total snow accumulation of up to two inches of snow and about a tenth of an inch of ice. So plan on slippery road conditions that could potentially impact uh, the evening commute as well. Uh, the, we can also expect rainy weather late tomorrow night through early Friday morning. Uh, temperatures warming up, though, later this week tomorrow's high 36 and we'll get up to near 50 by Friday. Support for Radio Catskill comes from the Narrowsburg Union and Catskills Curated. 
presenting products of regional artists, artisans, makers, and craftsmen. Gift wrapping and shipping available on site. NarrowsburgUnion.com The Cooperage Project in Honesdale. Dedicated to building community through performance, learning, markets, and good times. TheCooperageProject.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.